0: Hi everybody, Michael Davis here, welcome to Bone to Pick, and we are coming to you today from New City and the headquarters of Hipbone Music. Uh, We are very, very fortunate to have one of the most successful and one of the most in-demand French horn players on the New York scene of all time with us today, the great John Clark. Uh, John uh, has been on top of his game for over four decades. Uh, His extraordinary uh, recording and performance credits include Joni Mitchell, Ornette Coleman, McCoy Tyner, Sting, Pat Metheny, the Brooklyn Philharmonic, Frank Sinatra, Dave Grusin, Uh, John Schofield, LL Cool J, Jaco Pastorius, Billy Joel, Toots Thielmans, uh, and a long-time association with the great Gil Evans. Uh, He has appeared on hundreds, if not thousands, of television commercials and uh, television themes, uh, dozens of motion picture soundtracks. Uh, He's an esteemed educator and author. Uh, He's currently on the faculty of Manhattan School of Music, inventor of the Hornet, which we'll talk a little bit about, I also founded his own label, Hidden Meaning Music, uh, which he's released six solo projects on that um, imprint. Uh, he also won the Downbeat Critics Poll four years in a row back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. So uh, I'm honored to uh, have him here today. He's a friend uh, for a long time. We've uh, Always a pleasure to getting a chance to play with John. And we just did a big band recording a couple weeks ago that uh, kind of reunited. So it's great to see John. And John, thanks so much for coming all the way up to New City to talk about your extraordinary career.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks.
0: Thanks, John. Let's Let's jump way back. I know you were born in Brooklyn and you grew up in Rochester, Uh, did your undergrad at University of Rochester. Maybe talk a little bit about your memories as a young person and how you got into music and excited about music.
1: Of course. My grandfather was an organist and a choir director, and he started me on piano at age seven. I'm going to skip right ahead. (laughs) Uh, um, I had trouble uh, coordinating my right and left hands. I loved playing the piano and I could really really, uh, swing with my right hand and my left hand but putting them together was a problem. So I kept that up for a while and uh, I guess it was too frustrating for everyone else in the family to listen to me practice so uh, at age uh, 9 or 10, I'm not sure. Uh, I started playing trumpet in school. I liked the trumpet a lot. And then one day they took it away and gave me a mellophone. And I thought, oh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. It's curved. It's got a little more tubing. Oh, this might be fun. And uh, I don't know. I didn't have that for very long before they took that away and gave me a French horn. And I said, wow, this is really challenging. You know, So <laughs> so that was fun. I kept that up for a while. Uh, and it seemed like I had talent, so I got to play in some of the all-state uh, orchestras and bands and stuff like that, didn't like marching very much, yeah, so I, I kind understand. of like got myself kicked out of the marching band <laughs> uh, at around age 12. See, I'm going fast, right? I like it. I About like it. 7 to 10 <laughs> to 12. And uh, um, I got interested in the guitar and the electric bass, really because of what I was listening to. I, uh, There was classical music uh, being played at home and I just, it never really, really grabbed me. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I got a chance to listen to Elvis and Chuck Berry and uh, the uh, the Motown sounds that were coming out of my AM radio, I said, well, it's probably going to be guitar or bass, Mm -hmm. right? So I started playing guitar for a while. The thing from then on is kind of vague because the problem was I was never a really good student. I had talent and I could uh, like pick up an instrument and and do stuff with it but to really move ahead which you know very well requires uh practice and uh, perseverance and everything and at that point in my life I just didn't have that so uh, I just kept dabbling and going back and forth from one interest uh one instrument to another the guitar uh, really was what got me interested in jazz okay okay and it's so I started listening to jazz, Uh, Miles was probably one of my first ones, uh, uh, Miles Ahead, and uh, actually Coltrane as well around that same time. Those two were like major beacons for me, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But I didn't have the chops and I didn't have what I needed to to get the chops to to really get into that. But I was playing the guitar and somehow I got into arranging. I took a, a summer workshop at Eastman right and arranging right. and I thought okay well I'll go to Berkeley and I was all set to go to Berkeley when I came this close to being drafted into the army now this was at this point if you got drafted into the army pretty pretty sure you were going to go to Vietnam right right so this was a real quirk of fate that happened right then I hadn't touched my French horn in I don't know how long but Maybe the same day or the next day after I got that draft notice in the mail, a friend called me that I hadn't seen in a long time, and this is true, you can't make up stuff like this. <laughs> and he said, uh, John, I don't think you'd really be interested in this, but I just happened to think of you when I heard that they need a French horn player in the Coast Guard Band in New London. And I said, thanks a lot, I've got to make another call. <laughs> so within a week or 10 days I was in the
0: Coast Guard. Wow, okay. Just like that. So. Um, what was that experience like? I know that's always been a terrific band. I can imagine at that time it was probably loaded with great players. Uh,
1: there were mm-hmm. a lot of uh, a lot of young men in the same position that, that I was. Sure, you know? yeah. But a lot of them had already been to music school and they already knew stuff about music and they knew how to play and everything. I was just like someone who could kind of play the French horn, mm. right? So. The thing that was really great about being there, it gave me uh, time to uh, to work on all, uh, actually keep up practicing the guitar and the bass and arranging and so on, but while I was there I discovered that I really was pretty fascinated, and I wouldn't say in love, but I, I dug playing the French horn. Hmm. One day in particular, like I said earlier, I didn't care for marching that much, but we had sure. to do quite a bit of that, Yeah. yeah. and one day we were in a kind of a formation or something, playing at a ceremony. It was very, very hot and we were playing marches. And I was thinking, I'm really fascinated with just the idea that you can into this thing and get this beautiful sound out of the end of it. And that's just like a really fundamental basic thing that I realized and uh, it sort of motivated me to continue uh, on with it. Now, the guys around me, everyone else in the French horn section and other brass players, tuba, trombone, a lot of them had been to music school Mm -hmm. and were very much into orchestral playing. So that influenced me and I thought, oh, this is cool, oh, the French horns play this in in this Mahler symphony and so Mm -hmm. on and so on. So I started going to New York and to Boston to study with uh, different private teachers and listening to a lot of classical music uh, and trying trying to get that whole thing together. And by the time I finished at the Coast Guard, I could pretty much play the horn. You know? mm-hmm. um, but I still always wanted to play jazz and improvise. I didn't really know how I was going to fit everything together. Um, but of course by that time, I had a family. I had gotten married and had two little kids. So when I left the Coast Guard, <clears throat> um, after t- failing a few orchestra auditions, I auditioned uh, to get into the Tanglewood summer program with uh, James Stagliano. And uh, uh, by some quirk of fate, I passed that audition and got into Tanglewood. They even let me out a few days early from the Coast Guard uh, to to go to attend. And so I got there, and I was a little bit late for the first rehearsal. They were playing the Bruckner Ninth with Bernstein conducting. And here's me. I can kind of play the horn, but I don't really have any orchestral experience except for community orchestras around New London and that area and community orchestras that I had played in in uh, Rochester. So uh, there I am with Bernstein, Bernstein. and <laughs> Bruckner and I'm pretty freaked out. But uh, I learned so much like right you know, from the first minute I got there. But I have to tell you this one little story. During the first break of that rehearsal, Bernstein uh, came over. We were uh, all backstage, just kind of milling around and getting to know each other and stuff. And he said, are you the one that just got out of the Army? And I said, oh, I guess so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he came, gave me a huge uh, hug and kissed me on the cheek, and i just maybe, oh, okay, everything's uh, going to wow, be all right that's now. That's great. It was uh, so wonderful. Yeah. So it's- I just started learning so much that I should have known before. You know, but I hadn't been to music school, didn't know anything, and also, like I mentioned earlier, I wasn't a great student. <laughs> um, but then we went from Bernstein to Ozawa to Gunther Schuller, chamber music, orchestra, everything. It was just like a a massive wow. uh, dose of learning for me. And uh, it seemed to make sense to go from there to New England Conservatory. Mm-hmm. That's where almost everybody in the in the orchestra, they were either from uh, uh, Boston University or NEC, mm, okay. so.
0: Uh, so from there you went to, which was perfect, because I was just going to ask you about NEC, and I know you yeah. had some great experiences there. Maybe you could talk about uh, what, what that was like. And uh, that must have been a great transition going from, from that, you know, learning from Bernstein and then you're at NEC with their yeah. incredible faculty.
1: It really was, it really was. Gunther Schuller, in particular, I just if he were only still alive, and I could thank him again and again <laughs> and again and again it's the fact that he was the president of n e c at that time made it possible for me to do what I needed to do and I mean, I was so uh inexperienced and clueless that i didn't even know what a great opportunity that was. You know what I mean, so here he is uh the maestro of composition of playing the horn he had been principal horn at the Met et cetera, et cetera but also had been involved in the Miles and Guild project and so sure. on. So he was pretty much behind me all the way, whatever I wanted to do. But my job as a student there was, you know, I had a scholarship and I was supposed to play in the orchestra and do chamber music, brass quintet, et cetera, et cetera. But during my first year there, I really discovered uh through beginning to freelance outside of school and uh and be very busy in the school and so on i discovered that just playing in the orchestra and playing chamber music was just not me Mm -hmm. you know what i mean i felt like i can do this but i'd rather do this (laughs) okay (laughs) so at the same time right away i started studying composition with george russell I didn't start with Jackie Byard right away. I think uh, later he became my private teacher. But uh, learning George Russell's concept of tonal organization, mm-hmm. Lydian chromatic concept of tonal organization, boy, that's a mouthful <laughs> still. Um, learning that was what opened up jazz harmony and theory for me. Hmm. Okay, And I'm really, really grateful to George. If he were still alive, I would thank him again and again and again. Because just the first six chapters, I think it is, of that book just maybe made everything click for me, mm, you know. Mm-hmm. Other people, I don't know, they, they say, oh, no, I don't get that, or or whatever. And there are probably other systems of learning jazz theory, but for me that just really worked. Yeah, And it also worked for composition and inspired me to start writing, okay. I had, I don't think, ever composed anything before I uh, started studying with George. Moving on to my second year, uh, I hadn't been able to insinuate myself into the jazz band or really into the jazz side of the school at all, but Jackie Byard was the one who made it possible for me because I went and I said, hey, instead of, instead of studying with Mr. Stagliano or Mr. Newell, who were great teachers and you know really had a lot to show me about playing the horn." Could I have Jackie Byard for my private teacher? Sure. Wow. So that was a really, really uh, great experience.
0: Well, very progressive of the school to uh, be open to that, especially at that time. I mean, many many places didn't even have a jazz program that. uh,
1: If Gunther had not been the president at the time, I would have been out. Yeah. Most likely. Yeah, yeah. Most likely. So uh, Jackie. made it possible, and if he were still alive <laughs> I'd be doing that same thing with him. He made it possible, he uh, allowed me to play in his big band. There was no French horn chair, but he's like, ah, play one of the bone parts. Wow, So uh, that's great. I got my transposition together pretty quickly <laughs> then. Uh, but Jackie also, this is a story I will relate at this time, Jackie uh, invited me over to his house one day after my lesson, he said, bring your horn. I said, what do we need my horn for? Never mind. Just bring your horn. Well, it turned out Mingus was playing at the jazz workshop with his sextet. And after we were hung out at Jackie's house for a little while, he says, grab your horn. We're going downtown. We went down the jazz workshop, and we walk in, and I'm carrying my horn like, you know, me clueless. <laughs> he introduced me to Mingus, and he uh well, I'm, I'm kind of elaborating. I'm, uh, what do you call it? Uh, embellishing no, the story that's all right. a little bit yeah, it's, now. Really, it's good to Say, Mingus, you got those French horn parts with you? Because Mingus had written uh, parts for Julius Watkins. They were right, for right. Horn and F. And uh, so I could read. And I was beginning to be able to play jazz. I wasn't really that proficient yet, but I was, uh, I was doing what Jackie told me to do. I was a good mm-hmm. student because mm-hmm. I was really interested. Yeah, anyway, Mingus let me play with his sex set for a whole night. And then he let me come back and play for a whole second night. So I wow I two nights with Mingus' sex That must have been un- unbelievable. Yeah, it was. It was a really, really unbelievable experience. So uh, I never played with Mingus again after that. He did invite me to play in the big band, but as it turned out, the big band didn't uh, get put together mm. at that time. It mm-hmm. did, of Years course, later. later in again, yeah. in the, uh, I don't know when they started. Sometime in the 80s, I think. Yeah. So... Uh,
0: that's fantastic. So, yeah. And then following your time at NEC, did you move to New York right away?
1: Uh, pretty much.
0: Okay, what was just your memories of that time? I, I often think of, uh, is, you know, we've known each other for, for decades now, but um, um, you were uh, of, of that group of players that, to me, got the, 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 the best that New York had to offer in terms of the work that was going on then. And, and, uh and how fruitful work was back in that in that time but what, what were your memories of uh just kind of getting started in new york and uh, those early years
1: one one really fond memory i have was uh that before i even found an apartment i had a couple of gigs that i was doing and i was staying with a friend phone rang one night and it said is this is john clark yeah this is gil evans and i'm like mm. yeah sure who is this <laughs> <laughs> Just Gil Evans. <laughs> Can you play with us at the Vanguard Monday night? Yeah. <laughs> wow. So that's that's a fond memory, and of course, started a really long association that lasted 14 years. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, yeah, that was that was, it was huge. It was yeah. just huge. But at the same time, of course, I had to make a living, and I couldn't. You know, I think we got paid. Did we get paid fifty dollars a night or twenty? I don't know.
0: Right. Anyway,
1: right. it wasn't enough to live on.
0: Right. Right.
1: So I had to be. I didn't want to do a day job. I I knew I could probably drive a cab or something, but I said, since I do have this classical training, let's see if I can freelance and, and do other stuff. So, so I did actually play a lot of contemporary classical music and a sub here and there in uh, classical groups. I don't think I ever subbed with the Philharmonic, but I did used to sub with the uh, uh, the ballet and uh, I don't know, other things. And, of course, there was Broadway. There was mm-hmm. The whole Broadway scene was really, really different, and it has changed an awful lot. Mm-hmm. It was very relaxed at that time. Uh, you had to go in and watch the book one night, but if you made a few mistakes, it was like, eh, you'll get it next time, Yeah, you know. It ain't like that now. No, it's
0: uh, changed dramatically. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But uh, it was actually kind of fun then. Everything was very loose. I used to take my kids sometimes with me. Uh, I remember this one, I used to sub uh, in the show called Shenandoah. And my kids can still sing a couple of the songs (laughs) from that show because you could take them right into the pit and say, oh, can you sit right behind me? Don't be, you know, be quiet. Don't make a lot of noise. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think you can do that a now a either. Different era, different yeah. era for sure. Yeah. Well, then but, you
0: you certainly got busy pretty pretty quickly, especially in the in the in the studio world. And now, uh, um, I'd I'd like to go back to talking about Gill in a minute, but I I was wondering if you could share um, some of your thoughts and memories about and what it was like for you in in that in that really busy time of uh, studio work and and the some of the uh, you know who were the p- busy brass players french horn players you were seeing a lot and just you know what 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 was the uh, kind of like what was the scene like at that point
1: jim buffington mm. or buff as everyone called him was the cat in the studios uh, uh there was a duo of him and uh, and uh, i can't think of the other guy's name but he, the other guy had left moved out to the midwest somewhere so it was really buff brooks tillotson ray Alange. And they were the the three busiest cats, and for some reason they must have taken a liking to me. I don't, can't imagine why really, because I was kind of obnoxious, probably. <laughs> but and and I had a I had an attitude about style and playing, because I was so into jazz, and I was like, no one else is into jazz the way I am, you know. That even Buff one day when I was playing some, I was playing lead on something, and Buff wasn't. I don't know why that happened, but. Uh, I played a certain uh, phrase and they wanted to hear it again. And, and Buff said, John, why don't you do like a little fan thing, wah, wah, like that. And I said, oh, man, that's corny, I don't like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Buff was so confident in himself and he was just a really, really wonderful human being. He just laughed. I mean a lot of guys would have been insulted and right, say, well, right. why don't you go sit in the corner and I'll play. <laughs> but He was so cool. He was really, uh, he was a wonderful mentor to me. Buff was a guy that if he was in the section or he was even in the room, guys would behave. Mm, And if he wasn't there, maybe they wouldn't behave. You know, (laughs) they'd argue or uh, whatever, you know, behave badly. Mm -hmm. But uh, Brooks was also a wonderful uh, help to me. They they used to recommend me and send me on gigs and stuff because there was so much work that they could afford to. Yes. Okay. Rail Lange particularly really helped me a lot. And uh, playing with them too was very uh, instructive. They, they were fantastic players. One thing that I didn't learn from Buff that I should have, now pay attention, <laughs> students. One day we were at Columbia 30th Street, and uh, Buff had a thing about engineers. He would get really testy with them if they didn't give him what he wanted in his uh, cans or something. And so I forget exactly what happened, but he turned to me and he said, there goes another one. I said, another what? And he said, a chance to keep my mouth shut.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Always, right? Yeah, (laughs) so
1: unfortunately I didn't learn that well enough. And maybe I'll tell another story later about how I didn't keep my mouth shut. Maybe I won't tell that story, (laughs) I don't know.
0: (laughs) At that time, I mean, you were so busy. Who who were uh, who were some of your favorite writers that you were working for? Uh, Don Sebesky.
1: Yeah, you know, of course. And, and of course, I got his book with the record, and I took his class too. He was he was one of them. Uh, Klaus Ogerman was was wow. uh, yeah. a really he he wasn't around a lot, but when he was around, you you paid attention. Mm. Quincy Jones appeared sometimes, uh, and all these guys could really write. Uh, you know, I, I was trying to think of more and I'm having you know, having a hard time thinking of who they were. Kenny Asher is one. Sure. Yeah. Jack Kortner was there all the time. Great arrangement. They were all great. Uh, Carlos Frenzetti came on oh, yeah. the scene a little yeah. bit later and he was a really, really, still is an excellent writer. Um,
0: that must have been, I've always been a big Klaus Hogerman fan, that must have been uh, mm. fun playing his uh, yeah. arrangements. And, uh,
1: That brings me to another story. Mm, Excellent. uh, We love stories. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to mention any names, though. (laughs) But Klaus Ogerman uh, was the arranger for a date that I got called for once, and I remember that Brooks Tillotson was on it, and I was on it, and I'm not going to say who else was on it, (laughs) but one of the people who was on it had booked themselves through Radio Registry, and I'll explain in a second what Radio Registry was. But this was a person who was not a really great player.
0: Okay.
1: And the section sounded so bad that we got fired. We got sent home before the session was over. And I don't know. This was Stanley wow. Turrentine, And I was like, I was so excited. Stanley Turrentine, And I knew his playing and I knew I had listened to tons of his records with Jimmy Smith and Kenny Burrell and all that. And I was like, man, the combination of Klaus Ogram and something, I this is going to be great. And as soon as we sat down and played, I was like, this is not going to be great. Yeah. So, oh, man. But that's the kind of thing that could happen. You could, you could have a really bad experience like that and survive yeah. and continue working. Now I'll explain what radio registry was. <laughs> we were so busy at the time. Everybody was doing uh, like a zillion dates every week and every day. Uh, but the, the answering machine hadn't been invented yet, and nobody had a cell phone or a beeper. So the only way you could do this uh, was to have an answering service, and they would call you at the studio where they knew you were, or they would call you at home, or you would be constantly calling them to check in. Uh, there were payphones back then, right. and you you'd leave one studio and, and stop at a payphone, and they would say, "Hey, anything new?" You know, and it was just it was a kind of a great system. Really, yeah. really worked well for a long time.
0: I remember uh, back when Edison was open and there was those you go down the flight of stairs in yeah, the lobby of yeah. the hotel and the, uh, the, private and lines the radio. all the uh, all the payphones there and so on a break you'd uh, you'd see all the musicians all lined up uh, calling radio registry yeah. to check in yeah yeah the, yeah the times have changed that's for sure yeah. um let's talk about Gil Evans if you would and and maybe Please. a little bit in depth because I know he's a very important uh person for you musically and I'm sure personally as well would mm. would share your thoughts about Gil
1: Oh, I mean, I could, I could probably talk for a week about Gil, but the thing about him is he was so down to earth and not, uh, I mean, you, you just felt accepted immediately when you were around him. Uh, and he, he allowed the band to misbehave a lot, <laughs> okay? And, but because of that freedom, because we were allowed to do, you know, pretty much whatever we wanted some unbelievably great things could happen that would never happen if it was all uh, super organized. For instance, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't know this, but Gil almost never ca- uh, called a tune. He we ne- would never say, we're going to do such and such tune. And when, when we did realize what tune we were going to play, he would never count it off. He wouldn't even stomp his foot. Wow. Okay, the way we would start tunes is only if somebody played a little... Uh, a, a snippet of of the melody of a tune, it it might catch like like if you were starting a fire out in the woods or something, but it might not catch, and then somebody else would play something from another tune. But if enough people, uh, if there was enough consensus, it would move ahead. But sometimes, in all fairness, I have to say, Gil was at the piano, and sometimes if he would if he would play a snippet of a tune, everybody would uh, grab it right away. So. Uh, it was it was very loose in that way, but it was it was like a really big, small ensemble. Yeah, it was almost like you know, a duo or a trio, and everybody was having this Vulcan mind meld mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, uh,
0: did you feel like Gil also had an influence on you as a writer? Uh,
1: oh, yeah. I mean, you you couldn't uh, play that stuff and hear it and not be influenced by it. Mm. What I wish is that I had really picked his brain more about how do you do this, how do you do that. He told me once, you know, a lot of the stuff he would write on napkins and, and go to try it at home. He told me once, you know, I just write barbershop harmony and then I put a little extra note in it. But to find that extra note, he would stay up all night or, you know, spend hours, days trying to find which was the exact extra note. So that actually made such an impression on me, I didn't have any system of arranging, right, that I had learned. Even though, I mean, I learned a lot of stuff from Don Sebesky about Jeez. these instruments, if you do this and that, it'll you'll get this result. But what I learned from Gill is that if you want to get a certain sound, you, it, you can't just get it by following a rule. Mm-hmm. You have to consider the context. Uh, the vibe, what, what you're going for, and you have to maybe experiment a lot before, right. you, before you really find it.
0: That's a really interesting way to say it. We had uh, the great Gil Goldstein uh, as a guest a couple months ago, and mm-hmm. he said that exact same thing. It's like uh, barbershop harmony, ch- church harmony with one extra note, but like, yeah. like you just said so well, it's like uh, finding that note. That, but often that that would, note, you there
1: know? would be more than one extra note. There'd be like two or three extra notes, but they all just worked perfectly.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: One time, uh, there was no horn part for uh, some tune, and I said, Gil, what do you want me to play on this? I said, just double the melody or something? Yeah, double the melody an octave lower, really softly. Mm. And so that's a trick I've been able to use a lot mm-hmm. since. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought of that if he didn't.
0: Mm. Um, you know, I've always thought of you as, you know, uh, there's so many fine French horn players that I get to work with, and obviously you do, but you've always kind of... Uh, been in addition to your uh expertise you're like a pioneer you know and and i I know you're not the original jazz french horn guy but you're certainly pushed it in a very significant way in that the instrument in that direction and uh when doing a little bit of uh, research for this interview, I saw that you won the Downbeat Critics Poll for four years in a row. So you were acknowledged in a in a way that was uh, you know uh, appropriate for what you were doing to to widen the the uh, scope of the instrument. Maybe uh, maybe just talk about that a little bit about the the Downbeat Award and uh, awards and what that was.
1: Actually, I don't think I won it four years in a row. Oh really? Oh I okay. I think I appeared in it. Uh, some years in a row, and I think I won it. I think was first place one, but I don't remember for sure. because okay. this was in the eighties, <laughs> and I know right. what they say about the eighties. No, I'm pretty sure I was only uh, one of one year. Okay,
0: sorry about that. But any at any rate, you you're uh, you were, uh, yeah, prominently uh, a part of the uh, Downey's recognized polls, me yeah. at that
1: time. Yeah, and uh, I think a good part of the reason was that I was appearing in public a lot with Gill's band. Also with Carla Blaze Band, and I don't remember what other bands. Mm -hmm. George Russell's a big band, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, various other small groups and small groups of my own that I would uh, appear with around the New York area sometimes. So, but after that, studio work got a lot busier. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just my own, I don't know, paranoia or uh, or, uh, uh, what do you call it? Conspiri- conspiracy theory. <laughs> I think maybe some of those writers got the idea that I had sold out and become a studio cat and didn't care wow. about jazz anymore. Boy, were they wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because over the years, uh, I won't, and again, I won't mention any names, but there were many, many instances where I turned down a, a really lucrative studio gig or commercial type gig to do a jazz gig that would pay a tenth as much. Mm-hmm. Okay, I always that was always my priority, and uh, anytime I had a chance to be with any jazz group or play jazz or play improvised music, I would do it, even if I had to say no to, you know, a lot of other stuff. But. Anyway, I didn't appear in Downbeat at, <laughs> hardly ever <laughs> after, after that. After that, that. <laughs> and uh, or I don't know. They, I, it's maybe not fair, but I think there really is uh, an element of typecasting that people say, "Oh, he's this," or "He's he's he's uh, part of the the, the uh, straight ahead jazz crowd," and we don't want him in the downtown scene. I used to be right. pretty uh, active in the downtown scene too. One of my favorite things that I did was with uh, the great uh, violinist and composer Leroy Jenkins. He had a quintet called the Mixed Quintet that was uh, horn, violin, uh, clarinet, flute, and and uh, bass clarinet, I think it was.
2: Mm.
1: And I loved that group. Mm-hmm. I really loved that. We played a lot around New York. We toured, we recorded. Unfortunately, he's not uh, with us anymore. Julius Hempel was another uh, uh master in that scene that I played with a lot and I really loved it. actually, he had a big band that both Vincent Chansey and I played in mm. very rare uh experience of two French two, horns in in a, yeah. in a wow. big band so but I think <clears throat> I'm not sure but I think maybe some people in that scene thought, "Oh, he's a studio cat. He, you know, he probably we don't want him here, or he wouldn't be interested." I was interested in everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. All of
0: it. It's interesting, and I think that's what we all face with musicians, and perhaps it's you know in life in general. But uh, mm. getting pigeonholed, and the, people seem to want to put you in a box and say, "Well, this is what this guy does." You yeah. know, and so, yeah. it's kudos to you for. Uh, Plowing through that and staying staying true to trying to play the music that you wanted to play, and, and that's great. Can you? I know you've had so many, and you've already shared a couple of them uh, with us. But do you have some favorite projects that you look back on and say, "Wow, so happy to be on that uh, that record or that uh, movie or or whatever it hap- might happen to be"?
1: Yeah, several, several, I guess. But uh, the Quincy Jones and Frank Sinatra thing mm. was was pretty huge.
0: <laughs> I guess.
1: <laughs> Yeah, just I've uh, been in the same room with some of those cats. Yeah, George Benson. Uh, I don't remember a lot of well. Steve Gadd was on drums. Uh, Ron Carter played bass, I think. Yeah, I don't remember a lot of them. Of course, the in the in the brass and the winds was all the same cats that I was seeing every day. Anyway, mm-hmm. Randy, uh, Alan Rubin, Dave Taylor, etc. So that's that's a fond memory. Um, anything with Gil is a fond memory sure
0: you played Uh, i i know you have credits with my two guitar heroes pat metheny and john scofield what was uh what was the experience like working with those uh, um pat
1: metheny was is uh is a really actually a very humble cat and and then fun to be around i I don't remember that much about the music it was kind of a long time ago and because i don't think i ever did anything live with pat only uh uh, studio stuff so and gil Golstein i think arranged at least one of them so that was great music and, and great uh, fun, but I don't remember it as well as I remember SCO because I actually knew SCO from way back because we were in Boston at the same time. I was oh, okay. at NEC, he was at Berkeley, and I used to know him and go here and play everywhere around Boston. But uh, I did a tour with him in the UK, I want to say that was in the early 90s. Or something, mm-hmm. and then recently played with him at Lincoln Center just last year. Oh right, right. Where yeah. we did the music from the Quiet album. Right, right. And I had forgotten how great that was. Boy, to to play it over again, you yeah. Know, for for two whole days of rehearsal and and gig, that was really really nice.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that record. I remember. He, mm-hmm. I think that was his first record on Verb, if I'm not mistaken. But he signed the new deal and mm-hmm. came out with something completely different than what he'd uh, done up to that point it was yeah very cool
1: uh, oh excuse yeah, me yeah yeah no no, no, no please no. mike gibbs and Joni mitchell mm. do you know the album uh don juan's reckless daughter i don't i don't know if it's no. even uh, around in print but students take <laughs> note go get it if you can I, I don't even know if it's available i have the lp somewhere at home
0: it's Joni's record yeah or, okay this
1: is a fantastic record but it was so unusual because it's weather report accompanying Joni and Mike Gibbs arranging a huge orchestra after the fact, okay wow. so you got Jocko, you got Wayne shorter, you got Joni Mitchell singing a bunch of originals of hers that are great songs anyway but then there's this orchestra that Mike Gibbs arranged from listening to the to the rhythm section and the and the singer so.
2: Wow, that uh, yeah. sounds really
1: good. I remember it very fondly. This is quite a while back. This is 1970 mm. something. Uh I want to say 74 or 5 maybe. Mm.
0: Mm. How would you describe uh and this uh, it's always interesting to, to hear uh, a description. And I think it's helpful for for young folks cuz it's we always say, you know, oh, you should have been here when, you know, wow, it was great then yeah. and, and and clearly there were some amazing times and and, but nowadays it's you know it's it's the evolution of being a musician and it changes you know I mean you could when remember how musicians reacted when recording of music uh, came into popularity and and right. everybody was freaked out about that how would you in your words describe how the scene in New York has evolved changed um, what are what are things that you would uh, you you have noticed over the years and and where it's at say kind of like now compared to uh, 70s 80s etc
1: Uh instant gratification mm. has become part of the uh, part of the scene uh someone called me for a jingle one day and uh, i don't remember how many years ago it was and i didn't call back for like five or ten minutes <laughs> and they had gotten someone else already yeah, right. <laughs> so and i said what i i was flabbergasted i said what why why could, could, well you just didn't call me back as soon as i wanted you to okay <laughs> but because we have this we have uh, cell phones and beepers now people want to get uh, stuff done immediately that's something i don't really miss about uh the whole uh, uh recording scene the studio scene of uh, what i do now mostly everything i do i know what i'm going to do a week or two ahead of time right i don't book stuff three years ahead of time the way uh some people do but uh that's so that's changed. Uh, and because everyone has a home studio, that's, that's what's really changed the recording scene. A lot of the big rooms closed because uh, they, they, just, they didn't have enough big projects. And everyone who has a small project can do it with their laptop and two mics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's changed. The Broadway scene, as we were saying earlier, has, has really changed a lot.
0: And I know uh, you you do recording yourself as well, right? Yeah. Nowadays, which I think is a great testament to you that you're staying up with the times and and, uh, that is becoming a mobile recording, being able to send tracks uh, and record them at home and send them back to the person hiring you. It's really fun
1: to do, actually. And one little thing about that, I will warn you students, (laughs) some of the people that will ask you to do tracks maybe can't read music. Yeah. And they don't have that much experience so a couple of the gigs that I've done online like that, uh, I've had to look at uh, waveforms to figure out where the beat is mm. and how mm. to put my part with it. They don't, they didn't send me a written part, they just maybe sent me a MIDI uh, version of what they want the French horn to play and I have to figure out where to put it. So it's really challenging, but fun. Yeah. You know, it's a fun kind of challenge. Um, I can't remember the name, but somebody, I had one experience pretty recently where somebody actually sent me a track with click and a part that was correct, <laughs> and I was like, "Bada bing, bada boom." <laughs> I was done. That was really fun. Uh, I think that we're going to see, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Someone like Bob Magnuson, mm-hmm. the great uh, reed player, he he does a lot of that, and you can do it for someone in Australia or yeah wherever.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and and I like th- your approach to it because you can easily say, you know, well, it's not like it was in the 70s. Well, that's yeah. right, it isn't. Yeah. Not, but here's what it is now, and you want to jump on board or you want to exactly stay back. And speaking of moving forward, let's talk a little bit about your, your company, Hidden Meaning Music, and you've released your uh, publications as well as the recordings. Tell us about that.
1: I, I started that... In uh, in 1978, I just had the feeling that I wanted, rec- wanted to record uh, some tunes that I had written that I had been playing with my quartet. And I didn't want anyone to produce it. I didn't want a label to be involved because I wanted to make all the mistakes myself without mm-hmm. it. And <laughs> it worked out pretty well, actually, <laughs> because the budget was so low that it was able to pay for itself pretty quickly. I paid uh, all the uh, other musicians a percentage every year of what my uh, net or gross or whatever, and everybody did, it, did pretty well. So, so that was successful, and then I thought, oh, well, you know, I could sell arrangements, I could do this, I could, you know, sell other recordings. And it hasn't been a mega business, but it's just been uh, something that I've kept up uh, all along and now actually uh on my website there's a store with all different kinds of arrangements stuff that i've done for the imani winds the uh, great wind quintet in fact that's an experience uh that i look back fondly at even though it was about three weeks ago <laughs> uh, they asked for an arrangement of sam cook's a uh, change going to come oh, okay and uh, i had such a ball arranging that and uh, so that arrangement will probably be for sale in my store. Nice. Um, then in the 90s or so, some friends in the, in the studio scene and all around started encouraging me to write down exercises that they would hear me practicing because I had I'd started to make up a lot of different exercises and, uh, oh, John, you should write that down. I said, oh, I'm not sure what it is. So, <laughs> but gradually I put it all together and I made this book, Jazz Exercises for Jazz French horn that's been a big seller mm, over I've the years. It, yeah. Um the th- I'm going to do volume 2 also nice. pretty soon. I I started on it and it's going to going to finish pretty soon, I hope. Uh, I don't know what else to say about the business really. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: it's just great. I mean, um of course I had followed a similar path with, with Hip Hop Music yep, and doing yep. stuff, but I I think it's uh I speak, especially now for young folks, you know, it's it's almost it's Almost a necessity if you want to do be involved in creative music. It uh, seems that way. You know, there it aren't seems that the way. labels signing uh, multitudes of uh, artists yeah. these days. But that said, th- th- it's a wonderful opportunity if you want to take a take it on, take the mm-hmm. initiative to do it yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, you just made me uh, think of another thing about how the scene has changed. So just mm. rewinding yeah, a little yeah. bit, uh, uh, I've always, uh, as I mentioned, ever since studying with George Russell, I wanted to be a composer and. So that seems to have escalated, and I learned actually while uh, from teaching it in the jazz department at MSM, uh, they really encourage students not to just be a player, mm-hmm. but to be an educator mm-hmm. and a composer. Because mm-hmm. after all, jazz improvisation and c- composition are really the same thing; just goes at a different speed. Right. right. Okay. So uh, one thing that's changed a lot is kids write tunes mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they write they write arrangements and stuff and uh for me since i I'm, I'm able to take the time now to uh, to write more and i'm associated with a couple of groups like last night i played a concert with this uh, organization called composers concordance which brings composers together a lot to play each other's music or they do all kinds of different formats but uh so i'm just Pushing ahead more with writing music, because mm-hmm. yeah. I figure that's something I can do even when I become like 99 years old. <laughs> I might not be playing the French horn at that age, but uh, but I'd, I used I used to think of like 60 as being like the the limit of what what you could play a brass instrument at, but that's of course no longer true.
0: Yeah. 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 Look at Doc Severinsen still yeah, ripping off yeah. five G's and A's at uh, that Cheatham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Doc
1: Cheatham is another one. Uh, Vince DeRosa was still playing uh, at age eighty. I think he stopped playing around eighty-two, uh, but you know he's he's in great health.
0: Yeah, yeah. John, what uh, as we kind of wind down a little bit? What uh, I know you mentioned some of your future projects, but what do you have? Uh, what do you have on the front burner coming up?
1: Oh, that book, um, the writing. Uh, composition, composition, composition. As far as albums, I really don't know. Uh, Like right now I don't know if I have as much uh, music as I would want to make an album, but something that people are doing nowadays is releasing one track at a time. Right. And I might be doing some of that. I I did actually, one thing that I did recently was send uh, a basic track to a bass player, drummer, and keyboard player and have them send me back their parts, and I redo my part, and then add whatever I want. So I'm kind of messing around with that. I'm not an expert engineer, but uh, I'm learning.
0: Yeah, very cool.
1: So so that's the kind of thing I'll be doing, writing more, uh, playing more. Uh, Every summer I go to Austria and participate in this outreach festival, and we always have an opportunity to write something there for the outreach orchestra, which is kind of a very big, big band. Franz Hackel is the music director, and he gives us a lot of freedom. He's kind of a gill in that sense. Mm. Uh, we can write any kind of music, and there can be a singer, or there can be a smaller thing, or a bigger thing. So I'll probably continue doing that every summer.
0: Nice, yeah. yeah. Well, we, uh, we all look forward to seeing what John Clark does next. So uh, keep up uh, all that. And and (laughs) as we finish out, I always like to end this because we do have a lot of young uh, viewers. And uh, I think it is, like you said, teaching is an an important part, but not only teaching, but offering advice from a seasoned professional who's been at the top of the game for so long. Um, What advice do you have for, for young players coming up now? And and, uh, in terms of trying to be a musician in this day and age,
1: Seize every opportunity to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Now, I'm joking, but not necessarily. Now, see, I didn't tell that story. That's good. That's good. I kept my mouth shut about that story. But, you know, listening is something that I don't know if is really emphasized enough to Mm -hmm. students. One of my horn teachers, Tom Newell, in Boston, used to tell me, listen to singers, listen to singers. I didn't know what he meant. I listen to singers all the time. I've got the radio on. I'm listening to... To Aretha Franklin, I'm listening to Frank Sinatra, I'm listening to whoever. But uh, there's a way of listening that I I guess I wasn't taught. And so I advise you to listen and figure out what you're listening for. Sometimes you should listen for sound, okay? Because really, like they say, if you don't have a sound, what do you have? Listen for sound, listen for harmony. Listen for melody. Listen for a groove. There are all kinds of different things to listen for, and you can't necessarily always listen to the same thing at, at the same time. So, uh, pay attention when you're listening.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so well said. I mean, listening is the uh, probably the most important thing we can do as a, oh, as a human being too. But certainly as, yeah. as a musician. Yeah. It's like, but not uh, just
1: probably. as i as, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Not just as a student, but as a player too. When you're Absolutely. playing in the band, and this is something I learned from Lou, uh, when you're playing in a in a in a band, uh, well, if it's if it's an orchestra, that's important too. You you need to be listening to the whole rest of the orchestra, but in a band, when you're improvising, you really need to pay attention to what the drummer's doing, what the bass player is doing, what everyone else is doing around you, because if you're soloing, you don't want to be just like,
0: <laughs>
1: like uh, spewing a, a, a stream of notes. You want to be reacting and uh, not mimicking, but uh, responding. You want to be involved with everything that's going on around you, so listen.
0: Yeah, great. John, thank you so much for uh, coming up today. It's been such a pleasure and I uh, uh, really enjoyed it. hope uh, all of you enjoyed it as much as uh, we did here today and we will see you next time on Bone to Pick. pa 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 pa